came in when they were practicing that, and uh, I said, well, when they were finished, all I could really do is say amen, because that was amazing. Um, and, and that whole concept, everything we've sang this morning, um, it's great how God puts things together. Uh, we make plans in a little room for Sundays, and then God shows up, and they just quantify, and it's amazing. Uh, we're on a series called The Quest, and today, if you look in your bulletin, there's a blank page, and at the top of it, it says The Quest, and then it says The Question. And so what you need to write down is the question, and here's the question. How do you see God? That's the question. How do you see God? Because I believe that how we see God will determine how we live, how we react. So real quick, what is the picture you have in your head of God? You don't have to shout it out, but just kind of be thinking about that. How do you see God? I was putting this together. I was reminded of the story of the little girl in a Sunday school class, and, and she was drawing a picture during craft time. And the Sunday school teacher asked her, what are you drawing? And she replied, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the Sunday school teacher, that's sweet, honey, but no one knows what God looks like. The little girl replied, well, they will after they see my picture. <laughs> I want to start out this morning as we continue on our quest with some names of God. Names of God that we find in Scripture. And I want you to remember the focus of this whole quest series is that we better understand what God would have us do so that we're seeing the world with His vision and through His eyes and not our own. So when I ask the question, how do you see God? I'm not asking what you think He looks like. I'm asking about how you perceive the way that He relates to you. And as we look at these names of God, I want you to think about how you see God, how God is interacting in your life. But before we look at the names of God in Scripture, I want to share with you some names of God that I found in a book that's called Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. This is a book by Josh McDowell and Bob Hostetler. And I got to tell you, whether you're young or old, this is a great book, uh, by the way. It's kind of like Mythbusters for God. Uh, and so I think we can all relate to that. Um, and I want to encourage everyone, if you haven't read it, to read it at least once. You can get it on Amazon used for as little as five seventy-eight. There's a selfless plug for don't check your brains at the door. It's well worth the five bucks. All right, here we go. These are myths of how the world sees God and Jesus. The first one is this. The world sometimes sees God as a cosmic cop. The killjoy. They see that God is up there in heaven. He's walking the beat and he's making sure that Christians don't have any fun. He rules by the book, and he is a very strict judge, the cosmic cop. Uh, other people in our world, and, and this goes for a lot of Christians as well, not just heathens, okay? But some of you all may even think this way. The next one is Luke Skywalker. They see God as Luke Skywalker. Uh, the force, kind of like he's some impersonal force that it can be used if we have enough faith. We can use the force of God. There's also the vending machine God. We all know this God very well. Uh, he's also known as the Father Christmas God or Santa Claus or the genie in the bottle God. You know who I'm talking about because we've all done this. Oh, God, I've been good, mostly. Any, anyways, it would be really great if you would do this for me. Like a vending machine. We just go up, we put in our prayer, and out comes the answer that we wanted. Or we rub the lamp, the lamp of prayer. Oh, genie God. 
Help me pass this test, and I promise I'll study better for the next one. Some of the teenagers are starting to wiggle a little bit. Hit too close to home, didn't I, kids? Hey, don't worry, your parents do it too. Oh, God, help me get this raise, and I'll tithe more. What? Everybody should get a raise. <laughs> we, we do these things because we, 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 we do these things. We do it with Jesus. We do it with God. We want to make deals. We want to be like a pawnbroker for our prayers sometimes. You know, people also think about Jesus. He was just a good teacher. Oh, he, he said a lot of good things, but really? The son of God? Equal, but not really? Really? Ah, he was just a good teacher. Or the superstar Jesus. You guys know rock star Jesus, right? Fed 5,000 people. Everybody wanted to be around him. Ah, oh, fed those people. He healed people. Ah, oh, I want to be around him. Yeah, we like superstar Jesus. He's the cool version of Jesus. There's wimpy Jesus. Wimpy God. That's, that's where we confuse meek and mild with weak and wimpy. You see, we, we forget what meek and mild really mean, that it's power under control. And that he had all the power of God and he kept it under control and used it to glorify God and not himself. But yet the world still sees him as wimpy Jesus. There's plastic Jesus up in the ivory tower, not approachable, but he's up there and he's looking good. Ah, there's white Jesus too. Almost forgot about that one. That's the one where everybody thinks that Jesus is white. And so if he's white, he can only be concerned with white people. You'd be surprised how many people believe that one. In my office, I was going to bring it in here, but I didn't want to distract anybody. I have Jesus in a box. It's true. You can come in and see it. It's about this tall. When you press on his, on his back, he actually says Bible verses, and it's kind of creepy. <laughs> I'm told that when you walk around my office that his eyes follow you, and that's even more creepy. But I have this Jesus in a box, and, and I got to thinking about that when I was writing this sermon. I was like, that's it. We take all these things, all these ideas we have about Jesus and God, and we just put them in a little box, and we package it up. We can't keep God in a box. I want to look at the names of God in Scripture. And when you start to understand these names of God, you're going to be thinking, shame on me for trying to put my God in a little box that defines him. We can't do it. Before we get into the names of God, I want you to just pray with me. Father God, I thank you. Thank you for the opportunity we have today to study your word, to, to hear it. As, as we look at all the ways that, that we define you, I pray that you'll forgive us for the times where we see you as so small and, and, and tiny and, and that we can just box you up. I pray that you will just move our hearts, Lord, so that we will know you are who you say you are and we will have faith and trust that you will do what you say you will do and that will be enough for us. Uh, forgive us for the commercialism of, of your name uh, and the other things we do against your name and against your will. I pray, Lord, right now you'll just speak to our hearts. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We can't keep God in a box. If you want to write down some of these names, uh, that'd be awesome. You can look them up. I'll throw out some, some scripture references that go with them. But one of the first ones is Elohim. It's the plural form of El, E-L. And Elohim means strong one. It's also used of false gods, but when it's used of the true God, it's a plural for majesty, almost like the most majestiest. I made that up, majestiest. 
It, it's as big as you can actually get. It, it's especially used when talking about God's sovereignty, his creative work, his mighty work for Israel, and in relation to his sovereignty. And it's in Isaiah 54, 5, and also in Jeremiah, uses this word Elohim to really talk about the sovereignty and the creative work of God. There are some other compound names of the name El, and so I'm going to get into those a little bit. There's El Shaddai, which is God Almighty. Oh, that's a good one. That, that's the God I want to follow after. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Some scholars say that it also stresses God's loving supply and comfort. And others say that it stresses His power as the Almighty One standing on a mountain and who corrects and who chastens. Ooh, I don't know if I want to follow that God now. <laughs> he's going to correct. He's going to chasten. That's another word for discipline. But that's El Shaddai. That's God Almighty. That's Genesis 17.1. You can see reference to that. And also Genesis 28, chapter, or chapter 28, verse 3. There's El Elyon, the Most High God. And this name for God stresses His strength, His sovereignty, and most of all, His supremacy over everything. Daniel 7, 18 and, chapter, and, and verses 22 and 25 are also El Elyon, the Most High God. El Olam, the Everlasting God. It's His unchangeableness. And it, it's that He's connected and He's inexhaustible. He, he doesn't stop. Genesis 16, 13. One that we're all familiar with is Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. It comes from a verb which means to exist and to be. That and its usage shows us that this name stresses God as independent and self-existent. He's always been. He always will be. Exodus 6.3. Now there's some compounds of Yahweh, and, and these are designations or titles that reveal additional facts about God's character. Yahweh Yira, the Lord will provide. Has he ever provided for you? Oh, yeah. It stresses the provision, God's provision for his people, specifically in Genesis twenty-two fourteen, 14. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. It stresses that God is our rallying point. You ever down and out? Yahweh Nisi, he's our banner. Rally underneath that. It means of, it, it's, it's our means of victory is through God, not ourself. He's the one who fights for his people, like in Exodus 17, verse 15. Ah, there's so many words. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Yahweh Makadeshim, the Lord your sanctifier. Portrays the Lord as our means of sanctification. He's the one who sets believers apart for his purposes. Exodus 3.13, or 31.13. Yahweh Shama. The Lord is there. It portrays his personal presence in the millennial kingdom. That's in Ezekiel 48, verse 35. Go back and, and look at these. There's, there's so many things about God. There, there's a word called theos. It's a Greek word translated God. This is the primary name for God. It's used in the New Testament. And it's teaching. It, it, it uses teaching is, is several things. The first one, he is the only true God. That's Matthew 29, or 23, verse 9. He is the only true God. He is unique, 1 Timothy 1, 17. He is transcendent, Acts 17, 24. 
and he is Savior, John 3, 16. This, this name is used of Christ also as God in John 1, 1. You may be thinking, well, what do all these names have to do with anything? Because those are the foundational things. It's kind of like I said, when I kicked off this series in the quest, and I said, where do the wheels come off? In the beginning. In the beginning, God created. We have to understand our foundation comes from those things. Not from our ideals of what God is, but for who he really is. There, there's another word. It's called kurios. It's spelled with a K. K-U-R-I-O-S. It's up there. It's the Greek word, and it's translated Lord, and it stresses the authority and the supremacy. Now, it can also mean sir, owner, master, or even refer to idols or husbands, but it is used mostly as the equivalent of Yahweh of the Old Testament. It's used of Jesus Christ, meaning rabbi or sir. You see, it stresses supreme authority. And last but not least, we use this word a lot about God. It's Father. Father is a distinctive New Testament revelation that through faith in Christ and through submission to Him, God becomes our personal Father. It's used of God in the Old Testament only 15 times, but the word Father is used of God in the New Testament 245 times. Now, where we sometimes have problems with that is how we view our, our earthly fathers seems to sometimes transcend in how we view our heavenly fathers. So if you men, we have this problem more than women. If we don't respect our earthly father, it takes us a little while longer to come around the bend to respect God, our heavenly father, for who he is. Women, if our earthly father didn't treat us well, it takes a little while in order to trust our heavenly father, who is, who is I am, who is everything I just said. But Father, as the name of God, stresses God's loving care, His provision, His discipline, and the way that we're to address God in prayer. Matthew 7, 11. So how do you see God? Because the way that you see God will determine how you live your life. The way that you see God will determine things like your work ethic. You stealing from the company? No, I would never do that. You taking longer breaks, the clocking out for shorter ones. I don't know what you're doing. But the way you see God will determine how you do things in your work. The way you treat your spouse will be determined by the way you see God. The way that you treat your kids and your grandkids will be determined by the way that you see God. The, the TV shows and the movies that you watch will be determined by the way that you view God. You see, the music that you listen to will be determined by the way that you view God. So how do you see God? Does it show in your daily life? This is where we're going to all get a little bit uncomfortable. Because I got to tell you this, the way that you see God will show in your daily life. Because how you live shows the world how you see God. You can say what you want. You can sing what you want. You can pray what you want publicly and privately. But how you live your life shows the world how you see and how you view God. Baylor University did a study a few years ago. And, and this guy named Greg Laurie wrote this in his blog. And he, he, he kind of adds his own description to this study. But Baylor University did this study. And it went like this. It was actually published in USA Today. And it's an article about how people view and see God. 
It's entitled, The View of God Can Predict Values, Politics. It was based on a survey conducted by Baylor and identified four viewpoints of God. So I'm going to throw out four more. And they also called them in this, in this uh, article, they called them four gods, if you will. People were asked to agree or disagree with ten descriptions of their personal understanding what God is like. And the researchers then identified what they thought represented the four views of God. First was the authoritarian God, described as being angry at humanity's sin and engaged in our lives and world affairs. The next one was the benevolent God. Those who saw God in this way believed in a primarily forgiving God who would want us to care for the sick and the needy and love orphans and widows and that kind of stuff. Then there was the critical God, whom people viewed as having a judgmental eye on the world. But he wouldn't intervene to either punish or comfort the world. Just had a critical view of it. And lastly, there was the distant God. People who held this view simply believed there was a cosmic force that launched the world and just left it spinning on its own. I already talked about that in the first sermon in this series. I read through those descriptions of these four gods, and I was trying to figure out which one I believed in. And the problem is none of them really worked for me. And there were certain aspects in the different descriptions of God I agreed with, but none totally summed up where I stood. So I came up with a fifth category of my own. We like to call it the biblical God. <laughs> the biblical God. Yeah, he's angry at the sin of humanity, just like the Baylor researchers put out there. The, the authorita- or about the uh, authoritarian God. But he's kind and he's full of mercy just like those who believe in the so-called benevolent God would say. Uh, He does care about the sick and the needy, but the biblical God certainly would not be described as a critical or distant God. It's very important that we understand who God really is and, and what he's really like, because the way we see God will influence how we look at life. Our view of God will determine the choices we make, even the big decisions in life, such as who to marry, what career path to follow. It will even affect the way we vote. How we see God will also affect the way we look at problems and crisis in our lives. You see, if you have a big God, you have small problems. That's why I don't ever worry about anything. I run everything through a 30-day meter, and most things don't matter after day six. You get to day 30, it was so small it shouldn't even have been on my map. But if you have a big God, your problems are small. But if you have a small God and he's in that box, you have big problems. And every problem is a big problem. Now, listen, that's not to say, and I don't make light of catastrophes and actual big problems that happen in our world. But it is to say that if you have a biblical understanding of God, then your God is bigger than any problem you will ever face. And that's fact. It's how you look at things through God's eyes. When these things happen, you see, God gave this blessing to Moses for the priest of Israel to pronounce over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's in number numbers 624 through 26. This gives us a biblical picture of who God is. He loves to bless us. He loves to keep us. He loves to smile on us. He listens to us. He protects us. And he gives us peace, even when the world around us is in turmoil. 
And sometimes we get frustrated with God because he doesn't give us what we want. And we pray for something. We tell God that he needs to do this for us. And if he really loved us, he would. And we sound like kids. If you really love me, God, you'd do this for me. Mom said it was okay with her if it was okay with you. That's the stuff we do. And then God says no or not right now. And we get mad at him. And we feel as though he somehow has shortchanged us. And we forget that the, the very person, the very entity that we think has shortchanged us has given us his son as a sacrifice for our lives and for our sin. And, and that's where we're going to spend eternity because of that. And yet we have the audacity to think God shortchanged us because we didn't get the prayer answer that we were looking for. Wow. Maybe we just didn't like the answer. Sometimes we interpret no as no answer at all, but in fact it's still an answer. No means no. God loves us so much, He doesn't give us what we want because what we want may very well destroy us. We're not ready for it sometimes. Or maybe it's not His plan. Look, I've been in ministry a long time now. I've seen and heard a lot of things. I've seen many situations in which people got what they wanted and didn't like it once they got it. I'm entitled to this. Okay, God gives it to them and they come back going, I didn't want that. Yeah, I know. I tried to tell you. You know, there are people who, who determine to follow a certain course, even after I warn them, and I'm not all-knowing. I've just made a lot of mistakes myself, and so I try to help people learn from my mistakes. Uh, they get everything they want, and they end up being miserable. I've watched teenagers. I can't wait to get out of the house. I'm like, no, stay home as long as you can. Don't get out of the house. Parents are going, no, don't say that. This is being recorded. No, get out. Hey, look, I got kicked out when I was 16. Stay home. Be glad that your parents are overprotective and overbearing in your life. Be glad. The Bible, talking about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, says their desires ran wild, testing God's patience in that dry wasteland. So you know what God did? He gave them what they asked for. He also sent a plague along with it. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you wish for because you just may get it. God loves us, and He will put obstacles in our path when we're headed in the wrong direction. But we have the gift of free will, and our God will not force His will on us. He'll reveal it to us, but when it's all said and done, He is not going to force Himself on us. He's not going to force His will on you. We still get to choose. Man, that can be dangerous. Ultimately, if we're insistent on following a certain path or making a certain decision... He'll allow you to. He'll, he'll give you what you ask for. You see, the thing is, sometimes we feel like we're simply going around in circles in life, not growing spiritually, not, not following a path maybe we think we should follow, not, not understanding why things aren't lining up for us. And the reality is, maybe it's how you're looking at God. Maybe it's how you're looking at these things. Maybe you're not seeing God for who he really is. And that makes all the difference. I want to close out today sharing with you what a gentleman named Michael Gant wrote. He's from Agape Christian Fellowship, and I read his blog from time to time. And he titled this called, it's called, How Do We See God? He writes this, There's a view of God that the church of this generation seems to have lost. The high, exalted, lofty, exclusive, unparalleled, unprecedented character of God. 
Preferring the comfort of his nearness, we have forsaken the truth of his transcendent holiness. We want to snuggle and wallow in the cheap grace and shallow sanctification because we have abandoned the biblical picture of God's holy and exalted nature. He is not the man upstairs. He is not Big Daddy. He's not Papa. He's not your homeboy or anything else that our conscience or imagination wants him to be. Those images of God are safe. We don't respect them. We don't fear offending the image of the God that we snuggle with, that we get warm fuzzies with. This is the emergent God, the God that we always wished was, and so we have formed in him, we formed him in that image. We've made God safe. I, now, he doesn't write this, but as I was reading this, I kept thinking back to the Chronicles of Narnia, and they're talking about Aslan. Is he safe? No, he's a lion. He cannot be tame. He cannot be, he's not safe. But he is true. And he'll do what he says he's going to do. You see, we've made God, we've made a God that fits in our box, that fits in our sense of goodness, our sense of graciousness. <laughs> and our approachability. <laughs> That's him. I'll let you decide if he can watch you when you walk around the room. But when we put him in a box and we make him safe, it's only a matter of time until we have completely coerced scriptural interpretation into a system of universality. It's neutered God and it's rendered him harmless. It'll be interesting if he actually fits into our mold when we stand before him on the final day. I think he may not. Because the God revealed in the Holy Writ is not accustomed to behaving in a way that makes men feel all warm and fuzzy. Some things we need to know about God. God is ineffable. He's indescribable. His glory is amazing. He dwells in an unapproachable light. No man can see God and live. Exodus thirty three twenty. God is a consuming fire. Hebrews twelve twenty nine. What about either one of those verses is safe? But they're true. In a single word. God is holy. God is infinite holiness. And when you understand that, you will understand the wonder of Isaiah in chapter 6 in his prophecy when he cried out at the vision of God, Oh, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of people of unclean lips. Aren't we most blessed that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the very Son of God himself, has bridged that gap between the finite and the infinite? the holy and the profane. He has broken down the barrier between us and the Father. However, he did not do this in order that we could become, or that God would become like man. He did that through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. You see, the God of the New Testament is the same God that thundered from Sinai and caused Israel to tremble. He has not morphed himself into something else. And I'm not comforted by serving a God with whom I could meander into the sanctuary and throw my feet up on the communion table and have coffee and chat with him. I'm more greatly comforted in serving a God that makes me tremble in awe and wonder. A God who is not like me, who is entirely other than me, holy. I don't know about you, but I don't want to worship a God if he is like me. And I hope you think the same way. I refuse to worship a God that I can keep in a box or or in my garage or on my wall in my living room with 500 channels. Well, I just made a transition there and some of you missed it. 
I choose to worship the one true God, the one true God that is holy. There are many names and many descriptions for God, but the more we try to define him, we will find that the box we put him in just gets smaller and smaller. And we end up seeing God through a very misty lens. As we respond to what you've heard today, I pray that your response is to let God out of whatever box you put him in. And let me tell you, you don't have to come forward to do that. You don't have to do any. There's nothing magical in letting God out of that box. It's between you and him. But you know if you're doing it, you know where you keep God and where we should have God. As we respond to what we've heard today, look, if you want prayer, I mean, the elders are here. The baptistry is ready. We'll move the tent. We'll help you start fresh. The only question you have left to ask today is how you're going to respond to what you've heard. I hope you see God differently. I hope you've been challenged somewhat by the scriptures. I hope you'll go home and study these words and these names for God. And I hope that that will help you to see how you see God and that it will change the way that you see God. Because when we change the way that we see God, it will change the way that we see the world around us as well. Will you stand and sing with us?